0: Hey friends, this is Mark and you're listening to the Mark Explains podcast, a podcast where I dive into all things faith and science and life. And I'm just so thankful that you are listening in today. And I'm super, super excited. We're talking to a great friend of mine. His name is Matt Beal. We're diving into epistemology, which is so, so interesting to me. People often ask The question, what do you believe? And I feel like that's just such a surface level question. The question that I'm more interested in is why do you believe what you believe? The question behind the question. I'm not so much interested in what you believe, but I want to know why you believe what you believe. And this is what me and Matt dive into today. So I hope you really enjoyed this episode. It was so much fun to talk to him. Enjoy. So we are talking about the Bible today, and a little bit about epistemology. We're going to play that <clears> in. <throat> and uh, here we have uh, on the line with us, we have Matt Beal, who is uh, an old friend of mine, but about to uh, you're you're about to get your doctorate.
1: Well, I'm I'm close. I'm getting there. I'm almost what they call ABD, which which means all but dissertation. So I'm right now. I'm on my third year, nearing my the end of my third year, where I'm doing comprehensive exams and then I'll spend probably about two years working on my dissertation.
0: And what what will your dissertation be in?
1: It's going to probably be in the realm of gender and theology and how we can understand those through the lens of psychology. And and specifically, I'm a practical theologian, so I'm looking at the intersection of theory or theology, sort of theoretical theology, and actual practices. So the, so the lived uh, experience and practice of uh, gender constructs and how those work out in our lives. And I'm especially going to focus on masculinity and um, how men... Can be healed from some of the ways that masculinity harms us and harms and through us harms society.
0: Excellent. Well, it's really good to have you here with us, and I really appreciate you taking your time uh, to talk to us about uh, something that I have a lot of questions about, and I'm sure that a lot of people uh, are with me on that. We just have a lot of questions about uh, something that I was raised uh, with as a kid and taught that this is an errant, that this is without flaw, the Bible is everything that I need it to be and it will never lead me astray. But the more that I dug into it, the more I realized I have questions that seem to pop up about this book that I was taught didn't have any questions. And so, um, I think one of the first things that kind of, uh, popped up for me with the Bible was let's say, for example, the Bible says that it happened and God said that it happened. Let's say, for example, the entire earth was flooded. Um, with our best knowledge uh, scientifically these days with the amount of water that covered uh, the amount of water needed to cover all of the peaks on the earth, we would need nearly about three times the water found on the surface planet of the surface of this planet, including the melted ice caps and condensing all of the moisture in the air, which is virtually impossible in this atmosphere that we have. The earth um, also in a different passage, the earth stopped spinning for an entire day in Joshua. We know that all of the life would cease to exist almost immediately if that would happen. Um, Jonah could not have possibly survived in the belly of a whale if by chance he made it past the rows of teeth uh, that even the largest whale has. He would be faced with enzymes that would begin to break him down immediately, let alone zero breathable oxygen. I guess um, most whales have almost a purely methane environment inside uh, their stomach. So basically God said all of these things happened in this Bible. So how do you reconcile all of these things now that we know the, there is a lot of historical inaccuracies um, that play that come into play when it comes to the Bible? Um, basically, the big the big question I had is, is God a liar? Because I thought these I thought this was inherent. I thought this was an I thought that this was truth. So like, how do you respond to something like that?
1: Yeah, those are great questions, and um, I want to start by saying thanks for having me on. It's an honor, and these these are really important questions. <clears throat> One of the things I think would be important to start with, though, is the context from which you are framing these questions. So you are asking questions that that nobody really bothered to ask all that much. There was some there was some engagement with sort of a pre-modernist historical critical approach to scripture, uh, before modernism arose, but really very little and, and nothing like what we try to do under the enlightenment, under the effects of the enlightenment now under modernism or postmodernism, which is sort of a, which can be understood as a phase of modernism. That all that is a complicated way to say, we're asking the sort of questions that the author and original uh, sort of setting of scripture could not have possibly asked, certainly wouldn't have. So when you ask a question like, um, because this can't be historically or scientifically validated, uh, does that make God a liar? Well, of course, that de- what one of the things that depends on is a modernist view of science and uh, the created world and the relationship between cause and effect and chemical reactions and et cetera. And of course, the original audience wasn't thinking in those terms. However, I kind of want to back up a second and say, this question is really personally important to me because there was a time when I lost my faith precisely because of these questions. Um, (laughs) It was uh, shortly before I entered a a discipleship school known as Master's Commission. You're familiar with it.
0: Definitely familiar um, with it.
1: And I I encountered some of these, these ideas that I'd never encountered in all my life. I was... I was about 19 I know I was about 21 years old, and Time and Newsweek, about the same time, came out with some articles about contradictions within the Gospels, and I had never encountered this stuff before in my life, and it rattled my faith. It rattled it really deeply, and I didn't have answers, and nobody I knew had answers. So this was and happening
0: so, while you were at Master's Commission?
1: No, this was before Master's Commission.
0: Whoa, this is yeah, pre-Master's so- Commission.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so I, one of the things I did was I, i repressed those questions. I just shoved them under the carpet of my brain and my heart and said, you know what, this, I'm just not going to deal with these things right now. I'm, I'm just going to repress that. I'm going to kind of forget that those questions existed and just in a sense, trust that despite the fact that I don't know how to answer those questions, that somehow it's okay. So I repressed those questions and but they wouldn't stay repressed. They they just refused to stay down, and they surfaced later on. You know, a few months later, in a way that I just couldn't deny them anymore. And I actually abandoned the faith. Um, and I remember the moment when I uh, sort of flipped the switch and decided, you know what, I I guess I can't be a Christian, huh? And my whole world sort of turned upside down because everything I knew at that point in time had been grounded in Christ. And I had a sense of a call to ministry and had planned on, um, doing, uh, what's it called? There was a missions school, a lot like master's commission, um, where they would, they would go overseas on a a large medical missions ship and do missions and do discipleship training. And, um, and I'd planned on doing that. And I, because I had abandoned the faith, I kind of had to change my mind about that plan and do other things. Through the course of, of several months of wrestling with uh, my faith and my lack of faith and with other world religions and looking into Islam and, and um, you know, different perspectives on Christianity and Taoism, uh, I was especially attracted to Taoism through that time. I still really like Taoism. I think it's, it's fascinating.
0: For those who don't um, know, uh, what is Taoism?
1: Taoism is an Eastern faith uh, based on the writings of Lao Tzu, I believe is the correct Name. Uh, it's been a while since I've actually looked into that, so I'm not going to get into a, you know, a, a theology or a, a, a <laughs> metaphysics of Taoism right now. But um, you know, a good introduction point for those that might be interested would be a little book called The Tao of Pooh, uh, Poo as in Winnie the Pooh. Uh, great little book. Great little book. It's it's tons of fun and kind of paints a, it, it puts the contrast between Taoism and Buddhism. And maybe Hinduism—I can't remember if it deals with that or not. Um, but anyway, that would be a good introduction for your listeners if they care to. Anyway, moving along, I, I ended up coming back to the faith. Okay, I, through through much heartache, through uh, a story that's way too long for this this uh, podcast. This, I ended up becoming a Christian again.
0: Was there but any? The mo- was there any one big moment that brought you back? Was there one big thing? That brought you back to the faith, or was it just, um, in a sense, missing the community, missing feeling like there was something there was something that wasn't uh, reconciled within you, and you didn't know what it was, and so you kind of reverted back to what you used to know, or was there like an event?
1: I, I would say maybe both. Uh, certainly, there's a psychological case to be made for me feeling the absence of community and the lack of, of a, something that had given me a sense of meaning and purpose and identity prior to that. Um, so, so I wouldn't discount the psychological sort of void that this, that, that my lack of faith created um, and that converting back to Christianity would certainly sort of give me access to that sense of meaning again. But f- phenomenologically, like what I was experiencing at the time was, was a lot of loneliness, indeed, be, um, not because, just because of that, but because of travels I was doing. And when I left the faith... I still felt very strongly committed to making the world a better place that I didn't know what truth was. I didn't know what, what religion was right or best or if any of them were at all, but I did know that, that I wanted to live my life according to love and truth and I wanted to make the world a better place. So those, I kind of held on to those with a lot of ambiguity now about what exactly they meant or looked like um, especially in relation to God, who God was, what God was. Um, I'd I'd lost my foundation in that regard.
0: Did you feel uh, any sense of that you were being a fraud or even betraying yourself in going back to the faith, knowing that you had um, differences that haven't been reconciled yet?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And I would say, yeah, there was a sense in that sense of that, a sense like I, I had abandoned this project and now I'm going back to it. Is that lame <laughs> is is that kind of just <laughs> being a dork um and but i was drawn especially to jesus and in a very emotional evening uh on the road by myself i remember thinking in tears god i don't i don't know if i can be a christian well or if i can really even be one um, I, I certainly don't know if I can believe in the Bible but I do I'm, I'm starting to recognize that the, this this one named Jesus is really really important and present and so if you'll take me I guess you can have me God whatever that means I and so in my own feeble sort of um, stumbling way i gave quote unquote gave my life back to jesus and that led me into a path uh, for several years of inerrancy right of of eventually coming to believe and believe very strongly that the bible was without error of any sort whatsoever according to any standard whatsoever so without knowing i was doing this what i was saying is that the bible upholds a modernist standard of science and history that was kind of the idea behind that, um, and that took me a while to actually get there, but not a long time. I I read apologetics and read some of the, you know, conservative interpretations of scripture and what these things meant and how Jonah could actually do this and how, of course, if even if scientifically that's impossible, nothing's impossible with God. If God created the universe in six days, certainly God can put a little oxygen in a, whale, in a whale belly.
0: <laughs> you got to love the God card and the, the circle circular exactly, reasoning. Yeah
1: and And if we're going to believe in God, then if if God is an agent, a divine supernatural agent that can accomplish things in the world, then I guess we have to acknowledge that the God card is on the table, but it's not a scientific card. It's not a it's not a modernist standard that we can apply to God. We can't test that uh, as a theory and and prove it. or it's not a falsifiable claim. It's a faith claim.
0: So so where do you discern the Bible where is that line where the Bible stops being factual and starts being myth or the vice versa where mm-hmm. does the Bible stop being myth and start being factual and does it matter
1: Good great question and that's a really common question and it presupposes a difference between fact and myth that is distinctively modernist There there's a sense in which myth can be truer than fact and and so when we read things like uh, Jonah. We, we think myth, we think fa- falsehood, right? That's, that's sort of the, the way that popularly we think of the word myth. We use it as uh, equivalent to falsehood. But myth is narrative that has a, a whole different relationship to truth than uh, falsehood or historical fact. Myth is a narrative that's, that's telling us something deeper than fact, some truth that's deeper than historical fact. And so we read Jonah through that lens, all of a sudden we have a whole different story that critiques Israel's religious and spiritual superiority by exalting the Ninevites' repentance above this fool Jonah. Jonah is actually the bad guy in the story. And Nineveh, the bad guys, are actually the heroes, in a sense, other than god who who's orchestrating this entire redemption of the world uh through this stubborn mule of a prophet
0: so in a sense there is a greater universal truth going on here that is much more important than actual fact and historical accuracy. yeah so
1: i don't think that jonah was a, was a historical human being that got swallowed by a whale and spit up on the shores of somewhere and hiked in nineveh um that's that's me saying that the bible has to be what what my historical modern my what my modernist view of history and literature demands it be well i don't it doesn't have to be a historical chronology of events in fact i think it reads much better when we read it as almost as a parable right when we read it as jesus saying there was a man that went along and sowed some seeds and we don't Interrogate that particular story. Well, well, what was the man's name? Did he did he really sow seed? How much seed did he really sow? Well, if we can prove that he didn't sow seed, then we've disproved the Bible, and uh, that's just it, we're doing something with a parable that a parable can't tolerate. Right? That's not what we, the way we interpret a, or interrogate a parable, and and so I think Jonah, for instance, makes much more sense as a, as a parable which is closer to myth in in the sense that I'm thinking it.
0: A great story that I can think of is when I was going through college, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people have this story. This is a pretty common story, especially growing up here in the U.S. We are a very Christian-dominant nation in some aspects. Uh, I know we have the freedom of religion so freedom from religion, but we are a Christian-based nation in a lot of aspects. It is the, the, the primary dominant religion in this country. And I was going to Michigan State University in, in one of my earlier biology classes. We covered evolution. As does every public school, we cover the idea and the theory of evolution, which is pretty well documented and understood in a lot of senses by many, many scientists. Um, we have more evidence on the theory of evolution than we do on the theory of gravity, and everyone accepts gravity. So it's it's kind of funny the idea of evolution. It's kind of funny, but uh, halfway through this this you know this girl raised her hand. She raised it high, and she's like, "No, no, no." Um, Evolution isn't real because the Earth is only six thousand years old, and the professor at the time, very gracious, said, "Well, uh, can you explain your position a little bit? Can you talk a little bit about why you believe that?" And uh, she said, "Well, um, I believe that uh, I believe that the Earth is only six thousand years old because uh, the Bible tells me that the Earth is six thousand years old, and so uh, that is my that's my." my standpoint. That's what, that's what I believe. And again, the professor was very, very gracious in what he said. And he goes, well, tell me why you believe that the Bible is a, a good source of information. Like, why do you believe the Bible to be true? And she said, well, because the Bible says that it's true and it kind of brings us to this circle the circle reasoning. And that's kind of what I want to talk a little bit about today is why do we believe what we believe um, a little bit of epistemology. I know that Christianity, I mean, there is thousands of uh, religions throughout this world um, to date and Christianity is just one of them. But if we take just Christianity, for example, it's divided into basically like five major categories Um, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Anglican, and Protestant. And we're not going to even talk about the independence because (laughs) there's so many variances and so many numbers there. Um, But just of those main five, I mean, there's like 12,000 plus denominations just in those five. But I was raised quite deeply religious, religiously ethnocentric out of all of those denominations. I was the one who found the one true path to God. It was me. I hit the bullseye. And I even believed that other Christians weren't going to heaven, so I would often evangelize to them as well as everyone else because it was me. I picked it. I found it. Even though, technically speaking, I was raised into it and really didn't have a choice at birth, but Assemblies of God, I mean, Pentecostal, that was it. That was the one true path to God. So I guess I want to start out by asking you the question, why do we believe what we believe? Like, did I find the one true path to God do you, or is is there more to the story?
1: That's a great question. And there's so many different directions we can go with that and, and with how you've set that up. Um, earlier in our conversation, I talked about myself leaving the faith and then coming back to it and mentioned that there was certainly a, a psychological dynamic that was part of that return that, uh, and a part of my sense of, um, being lost and having something desperately missing during that time that I, that I left the Christian faith. Um, it, it was a, a difficult, psychologically, emotionally, a very difficult time. And I was wrestling with, um, the competing ideas of truth and goodness and, uh, reading up on different religions ended up coming back to Christianity. And it's a, it's worth asking, why did I come back to Christianity? And, and there, there's certainly the psychological dimension. There's the sense of historical, uh, kind of narrative comfort with the Christian faith because I was raised in that to a certain degree. Although I, I, I for a long time considered my Christian background to be a lukewarm one uh, which is a, a way of criticizing my Christian upbringing as being too passive or too uh, wishy-washy. So there's that 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 psychological dynamic, that sort of historical uh, part of our narrative identity. That that because we're raised in it, we are it. Um, at the same time, especially many in the in the more free church movement um, and people that that value uh, missions and evangelism are going to emphasize that we're we're not bound to our history, right? Because I've been raised a Christian doesn't mean I'm going to stay a Christian. And in fact, I mean, that's a really good point because many Christians are raised Christian and then don't stay Christian through their adulthood. Um, And many people that are raised in other world religions, Muslim or Jewish or um, Hindu or whatever it might be, many people switch faiths. Right, some some radically switch faiths. So, so you know, say um, switching between different monotheisms, it, it's a pretty big deal, right? But but some people switch from monotheism to other versions of theism, polytheism, or non-theistic religious identities. Um, others move the other way, right? They move from polytheism to monotheism, and from Islam to Christianity, and vice versa. So we're certainly not bound. By our our upbringing, but our upbringing can't help but play a really, really important role in what what we where we land or where we move through the options of religious identity and religious practices.
0: so is there a is there a, a theological benefit? To believing that what you believe is the one rightness, is the one holy, true path to God, uh, is there a reason that is perpetuated through some ideological frameworks? Is there a reason?
1: I, yeah, you know, I think there are actually good reasons for it. Uh, not that they're necessarily um, the best way to think about things, right? But but that that's version of the Christian faith. And that same kind of um, exclusivity exists in other religions as well. It's certainly not uh, unique to Christian fundamentalism or Christian uh, conservatism. Um, But the, the Bible has a lot of very exclusive themes and threads in it. It also has other Threads right, threads that are that are not exclusive, that are radically inclusive,
0: hmm. um,
1: that are that that seem to in fact contradict this exclusivity, and so that's a great debate among theologians from from time immemorial, which is an exaggeration, but you know, <laughs> uh, that there there's this debate between um, say let's say universalists and hard exclusivists, right that. Some say that ultimately everybody's welcome in God and that welcome is or will be realized fully uh, in the end, that ultimately all things will be reconciled to God fully, all things and all people. And others say, no, 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 only the elect are getting up into heaven or some version of whatever the afterlife is, you know, in that, in that version of the Christian faith. Um, others say, oh, it's somewhere in between. You know, there was, uh, for instance, C. F., C. S. Lewis was kind of a. Uh, he could sort of be interpreted either as a soft exclusivist or a soft inclusivist, and I'm I'm kind of making up those terms, but I'm I'm pretty sure those are terms I've heard used before, and or something like that. And uh, so he had he had left it open that maybe maybe people who didn't explicitly put their faith in Jesus Christ might still be included as among the faithful in some sense hmm. or another.
0: I know it was Martin Luther who believed that once people died, that God gave them an infinite amount of time and infinite, infinite amount of chances to, in a sense, turn their hearts towards him. And it didn't have to do with a faith through Jesus Christ necessarily, because a lot of those people at that time didn't even know about that. Cause I believe during the time of Martin Luther, zero people besides the people uh, in in charge of the church, the Pope and the religious authority figures were the only ones that had manuscript, were the only ones that had um, any, any sort of Bible at the time. So the idea that people died all the time without, in a sense, accepting Jesus or accepting God as their savior, um, that didn't happen very often at all. So this idea that there could be a way to God outside of this religious ideas that we have now are kind of hard for me to swallow still because that framework is so deep buried and etched in my, in my skull and in my bones. And now I'm realizing, Oh my gosh, there's so much more to this story. There's so many more people out there that have never heard what I'm talking about that have never seen what I've seen. And they're probably going to be okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, there's. I, I'm falling in love with the idea of interreligious dialogue, and that that's not something I'm, I'm an expert in by any stretch of the imagination, but the idea of open and generous dialogue between people of different faiths or within Christianity of different people, people of different Christian convictions, that used to be somewhat threatening to me, mm. although I wouldn't have described it in that way. Um, but I saw it as something that was potentially dangerous. Like you had to be careful who you talk with or, or what sort of intellectual leverage you give them in a conversation, because your faith could be shaken. Hmm. And um, and now I see that as as um, unnecessarily defensive posture and the common phrase that certainly not unique to me by any means is that all truth is God's truth and so if I can learn something from somebody from from a, a religious body from a religious movement uh, that I don't share and perhaps don't don't agree with but if I can learn something from them wonderful hmm. um, we can hopefully learn to get along and and hear each other and learn from each other and love one another which is a pretty important principle in almost all religions
0: Let me ask you this question then. What is truth? I mean, we we can define it it from, you know, let's say you go to the dictionary, it says in accordance with fact or reality, but I would even dispute that in some senses. Um, I guess my question is, is there a universal truth or an objective truth? um, Or do you think all truth is subjective or relative?
1: Often you hear people ask the question, well, do you believe in, Absolute truth or not, as if that's that, some...
0: That that question bothers me to my core, but go on.
1: Well, and I find it troubling, too, because truth isn't a thing. It's not like you could, you know, pull up a chair and have a shot, do shots of truth, right? Or it's not that you can measure out truth. Like, can I, can I you know, buy seven yards of it at Walmart or... <laughs> 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 I'll, I'll take six pounds of truth please right <laughs> I, i've got I've, I've distilled it i've got absolute truth
0: oh that is still that's on the my, precious yes. stuff right there yeah that's, exactly
1: it it just doesn't work that way right so i, I believe in the, re, the that truth is uh, that things that certain things can be true uh, i believe it's true right it is it, it, it accurately describes reality that you and I are talking right now over Skype and uh, having a conversation about truth. I think that accurately describes reality. So would it be true to say that we are doing that? Yes, absolutely.
0: Can something be true for one person and resolutely true without being true for another?
1: Can you give me an example?
0: Let's do a thought experiment, actually, because okay. this is uh, – let's take it a little scientifically here. And the reason, I'm, the reason I'm doing this is because if you look in our culture and in our uh, – let's just look at Facebook and <laughs> the diversity that is perpetuated through Facebook on what people believe is true – And you have, let's just, for fun, let's just talk politically, because it's fun to talk about religion, but it's even more fun to talk about politics. (laughs) And uh, it's one thing I just almost refuse to talk about at all times, but let's talk about it right now, because you know what? This is my podcast, so I can do what I want. All right. Bring it on. (laughs) So, we have have these, let's say, individuals that would uh, identify as uh, politically right, conservative. Let's even call the 81% that voted for Trump. Those individuals who resolutely believe everything that Trump says and does in his entire uh, office and uh, all of the press secretary, everything they say and do is absolutely true. Those people believe these things that this office says regardless of merit. So this idea that for them it is true, completely and utterly true, it is true that he never paid Stormy Daniels any money, regardless of receipts, of transactions that have timestamps on them, with his signature, it doesn't matter. He said it. Therefore, it is true. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about thought experiment, this thought experiment about what we define as true because this idea that something can be true for one person and not for another (laughs) is kind of the theological or not theological i apologize is is kind of the framework behind the basis of constructive dialogue breakdown in our culture Mm -hmm. and society so we have for an example let's take einsteinian relativity
1: keeping it simple here good
0: very very simple um (laughs) So we have this train, and this example has been explained uh, through another podcast that I heard. Uh, The Liturgist is incredible. So we're just going to use this example that they have used. So we have this train, and this train, let's think of one of the, the train cars, but not like a box car, like one of the flat ones. And it's being pulled really, really fast on a set of tracks. And I am standing at the front of this train car. So it's flat car and I'm standing on the front and you, Matt, are standing on the back and we are facing each other and we are going to have a duel. And this duel is going to, uh, is going to happen with uh, laser guns. So that way, because both of us are primarily pacifists. So, (laughs) and so we, (laughs) And if you're going to have a fight, why not lasers, lasers, (laughs) let's, let's do it up. And so, but the, in order to have the draw be completely accurate, we are wearing helmets. And on the inside of the helmet, there is an LED that will flash. And these helmets are, the LED is triggered by a, if, when there is a flash externally, say like by a, a, a camera flash or by a firecracker or something like that. So here we have, are you with me? There is a train car and it's flat. I'm on the front, you're, and Matt, you are on the back. We're facing each other we're wearing these helmets with LEDs on the inside that will go off when a flash is detected. Now in the center of this car, there is an individual and and they are holding a firecracker. And what their job is to do is to light the firecracker, stand back and to make sure that the flash goes off. Both your helmet and my helmet receive the signal at the same time. And then when that signal is received, the LEDs go off both at the same time and then we both draw and we fire now there also happens to be a tower above us and on this tower is an individual and all that individual has to do is a second set of eyes they're backing up the person in the middle to make sure that this is a fair draw now this train is moving very 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 fast now the person in the center they say are you ready and I'm ready and they're like Matt are you ready and you say Ready. Ready. (laughs) (laughs) Cue. Cue. (laughs) I'm a quick learner. Here we go. So you're ready. And so this individual lights the firecracker. It goes off. Pow! Creates this big flash. I look at my LED. It flashes. You look at your LED. Flashes at exactly the same time. We pull our guns out. We fire at each other. And the person in the center says all right, great job. That was a fair draw. You both got the signal at the same time because they were looking at both of the LEDs on our helmets. But the person above us that is on the tower at a different perspective looks down and says, no, 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 no. Matt, you received the signal before Mark did, before I did. And therefore, this is not a fair draw. Because your LED went off before Mark's did. So the question is, who is telling the truth? And the reality is, they both are. Because, so ha- go, 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 go on, go on.
1: So is the, is the person on the tower traveling at the same speed? Or nope, a the person
0: speed? on the tower is, is on a tower, and they are not even connected to the train. They are just on top of a tower looking at the train passing by. So they're not moving. They're not moving at all. That's
1: okay, that was my confusion.
0: I apologize. Yeah. So the person on the tower is not moving at all. And compared to the moving train, and that's where the that's where the relativity differentiates. Right. And so when the firecracker goes off, as far as me and you and the person on the train are concerned, all of this happens at exactly the same time. The light reaches both your helmet and my helmet at the same time. But according to the person on the tower, your helmet, the LED, went off before mine, saying that the light reached your helmet before mine did. And, th- and here's the funny part. Both realities are true. Both realities are existing simultaneously. And in the scientific field, when they started realizing that multiple perspectives existed at the same time, that there is no absolute now, going on, that there was like a little bit of a widespread panic. They didn't know what to do until they slowed down and realized, but this is okay. That reality is the intersection of, uh, of observation. That the only way that we can see this ongoing reality that we call now is by your perspective, and my perspective not just yours and not just mine that this idea that your perspective is the same relevance as mine because that's where reality lives in this intersection between our realities and i know that might be really confusing for individuals but this experiment has been done (laughs) in many many labs across many uh, across the world and uh, has been verified and replicated over and over over and over to show that a a universal now doesn't exist yeah. so if we go down to the fundamental basics of what's going on in our in our world what we call life reality the universe and we can't even define what a truth is or what a oh because i'm saying I'm saying, no, we, we did get the signal at the same time. And somebody else is saying, no, 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 you didn't get the signal. And I'm saying, no, President Trump is lying. Yeah. And they're saying, no, he's telling the truth. It, on every perspective, there is this, this intersection of, of observations where we have to realize that no observation is any greater than another's even if even if i'm like no 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 i know that guy is a lying bastard and he is taking this country down into the pit of hell that doesn't <laughs> matter because my neighbor's observation and my neighbor's perspective is just as important as mine. It doesn't matter if it's the exact opposite. It's the intersection of our 2 that makes this reality as beautiful as it is. It makes it as diverse as it is. I guess it was the biggest electoral college win since Ronald Reagan. I am just
1: want to get on the table. Very simply, you said today that you had the biggest electoral margin since Ronald Reagan with 304 or 306 electoral votes. In fact, President Obama got 365. Well, I'm talking about Republican. Yeah. President President, Um, Obama, 332. And George H.W. Bush, 426 when he won as president. So why should Americans trust you? Well, no, I
0: was told, I was given that information.
1: I don't know. I was just given. We had a very, very big margin. I guess my question is, why should Americans trust you when you accuse the information they receive of being fake when you're providing information? Well, I don't know. I was given that information. I was given I've actually I've seen that information around but it was a
0: very substantial victory. Do you agree with that? You're the Okay, thank you. I, that's a good answer. Yes. So here we have here here we have this this dialogue going between uh an individual who makes a claim and then is immediately asked a question about this claim. And a lot of people grab on to this idea. A lot of people grab on to Uh, no, this was the biggest electoral win since Ronald Reagan. This is. Mm -hmm. And there are people that literally believe this to this day, that this was the biggest win with 305, 306 electoral votes. But with data showing all the way back with all of these victories that are much more than this, obviously that that is not the case. And so... This idea can be broken down, and I want to talk a little bit about this because I know we talked about this earlier about biases, human cognitive biases, and what this, how this plays into the frameworks of what we believe. And I think,
1: yeah. So I would say this is a good example of uh, of a truth claim that doesn't really fit the scientific paradigm of relativity at all. He, he's making a truth claim that's easily uh, disproven
0: completely. And,
1: And so it's simply not true for anybody at any time that he won by the largest margin since Reagan or whatever the the claim was.
0: Absolutely. But there are still people, and actually probably that people that will listen to this podcast, that believe vehemently that this was the biggest victory. And I want to talk about why they believe that. Like, why do they believe this? And I I think some of this comes down to uh, biases. And I know that... Uh, four basic biases. It could, it, there are dozens and dozens, but I know that four of the main ones that we could talk about would be probably the first being confirmation bias. And that is believing things that already support the frameworks of things that you already believe. You are more likely to believe something if it supports the frameworks of what you believe. And it takes mm-hmm. an overwhelming amount of information to, uh, to overtake that belief system. But there, there is also something called the backfire effect, which if you have too much information, then you will dismiss it all anyways. So hmm. it, it, there's this fine line of information that it takes, or this fine window of a ridiculous amount of information that you need to hit. And if you go too much, boom, you backfire and they disregard it all. So confirmation bias you, you will believe something if it supports the frameworks of stuff you already believe <laughs> then you have authority bias where individuals w- will are more likely to believe an authority figure regardless of merit of of the information given and this is a perfect example there's no merit to his claim but people mm-hmm. believe it because of authority and then there's bandwagon effect of course we believe it because everyone that is in this group of individuals that I am in also believes it. So we're going to, we're all believe it together. Mm -hmm. And then finally, and this is what I see a lot on uh, Facebook perpetuated quite a bit. It's something called availability cascade. And this is regardless of, again, regardless of merit, uh, if you hear something over and over and over, you begin to believe what that is. And this is really an interesting we're in an interesting time frame where we have this social media that plays into these algorithms perpetuated through Facebook and all of these things get feeding you little timelines on the side of things that you that, that you are responding to whether it's political if you are definitely politically right or left or i mean honestly it could be camping or whatever you want but it's feeding <laughs> these these things into your um, into your time frame, into your into your mind, and when you begin to see something over and over and over, you begin to believe it, regardless of factual merit of of, of how how much, let's say, you know, quote truth there is to this thing. So I guess my question here is, um, like, how much of my religious ideological ideological framework was sculpted? Let's just say by those first four biases that we talked about. Like, does it make my belief system any less valid?
1: Mm. That's, that's great. I like those those um, biases. Those are important. One thing that I would add to that is that all of them occur within a relational context. So, for instance, the authority bias. Um, people who voted for Trump or people who, who are inclined to approving of Trump are more likely to have the authority bias when it comes to his statements, they're more likely to believe him and, and disbelieve, say, MSNBC um, or, or some more liberal you know, media outlet. Others, maybe on the, you know, the left, would be more inclined to disbelieving Trump simply because it's Trump that's saying something and might be more inclined to believing I don't know. For me, it's Stephen Colbert. I love Stephen Colbert. (laughs) He's a a strong. I've got authority bias when it comes to Stephen Colbert. You know, (laughs) just beautiful perspective. Oh man, what a great, a great man. Like the guy. So I think one one thing that's helpful, that's also not easy, is to practice not only uh, interreligious dialogue but also (laughs) interpolitical dialogue it's important for us to, to cross the aisle and to break out of the echo chamber, as it's called uh, of social media and those um, algorithms that you mentioned that, that foster reinforcement of the same perspective that we already have, hmm. as you were mentioning. So crossing over and say, and listening to others, listening to people across the aisle is, is really, really important. And, um, as a Christian who strives to be a peacemaker, um, that's something that that we have to be practiced at. And one of the things it's going to take is um, courage and and wisdom to lower our defense mechanisms and say, you know, maybe I have something to learn from this person. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm not going to have foolish boundaries where I can be abused across the aisle but i'm going to i'm going to have to take some some relational risks to to cross the aisle and listen say to a trump supporter and i and and hope and um, trust that the same would be would be true in reverse that they'd be willing to listen to me if i'm but somebody has to put the gun down first hmm. you know if two people are holding a gun to each other's head somebody has to put it down and say okay you know what i'm, I'm willing to listen i'm willing to talk both left and right politically are naturally inclined and especially in our current environment to, um, oppose one another, maybe even by accident when they, when they're not necessarily in disagreement, not everything that Trump and Bernie Sanders say is actually going to be opposed to one another. They might actually have some common ground, uh, Bernie followers and Trump followers are probably going to find that pretty difficult, as would Bernie and Trump probably. But it can be really helpful to to find some common ground.
0: The way the political system is set up right now, it kind of seems like I don't know if you're familiar. Actually, I know you are very familiar with, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, let's say, New York Yankee fans. Like when you talk about the Boston Red Sox to any of the New York Yankee fans, what do they say? Oh. The Red Sox, they suck. And like what happens when you go to Boston, you talk about the New York Yankees. Yeah, well the Yankees suck. Mm-hmm. And they always will. And it doesn't matter how good they are that year. It doesn't even matter if they win the World Series. Guess what? Yankees yeah. suck. Mm-hmm. And we have this political bipartisan right now that is is like teams. It's like these mm-hmm. these baseball teams. And it, it it's like if I am a part of the political left, it doesn't matter what's going on on the right it doesn't matter if donald trump is in the office he sucks always yeah. has always will and even if he does something that i might actually approve of and if obama actually did things that the conservative political standpoint individuals approve of they have no idea because they're so they they have so much tone deafness to the idea that there could be shared interests going on because the Yankees suck. <laughs> and that is, it's, it, it's, yeah. it's this it, perpetual sickness that we have to think that there can't be common ground between the right and the left. When realistically, it is a spectrum. It's not mm-hmm. one or the other. It is this, this spectrum of individuals that some will lean more right and more left, but there is big overlap. And to think that Donald Trump actually probably is doing things that I can relate to and I would find shared ground on is very realistic. And this is something that I struggle with because I, I don't want to share a, a political viewpoint simply because it's none of anyone's damn business what my political viewpoint is. But I do want to make sure that I'm I'm reflecting positively. The idea that there's more going on here than just left and right, that there's more going on here than, than Trump is out to ruin this world for all the individuals that don't identify as conservative. Mm.
1: And one thing I would, I would add, and this is important when it comes to the Christian faith, the way I understand the Christian faith, crossing the aisle and listening to others is a value that I hold, but that value is, is tension at times with other values, such as liberation for the poor, uh, compassion for the immigrant, the stranger, which is a, a biblical value, um, throughout the old and new testaments The the stranger is, uh, one of the ways that God comes to us. Um, and so this desire to, to cross the island, listen well and listen thoroughly to others, uh, for me is sometimes in tension with that because there, there are ways that um, views across the aisle are a threat to the least of these, that are, are a threat to the stranger and the immigrant and the poor um, and the vulnerable. And so um, I find myself navigating that, especially as a person of great privilege, I'm a white male, able-bodied, highly educated, middle-class person Uh, So, I I have all of these intersecting privileges in my life that make it more challenging for me to um, uphold that liberation value uh, of attention and care for the poor um, when I'm crossing the aisle, when I'm trying to listen uh, to those in power that might disagree with me. Mm. Uh, Others I know have a lot more boldness in... in, uh, not so much crossing the aisle, but speaking across the aisle and saying, uh, we're not putting up with that. Hmm. We're not putting up with with that perspective because it's destroying people. And there we see that the competing truth claims again in, in a um, sphere of political power, which has real implications, real ramifications for, for actual lives. Um, so it's not just truth claims that are at stake. Its, it's lives and well-being that's at stake, and um, truth claims or goodness claims or beauty claims are, are involved in that, but those are often employed as uh, ways to grasp that power.
0: So when I lost my faith a while back, when I went through my large deconstruction, my faith crisis, I really had a difficult time at the end of the day, because I had a practice of praying every single night for years and years and years. And honestly, I'd pray the same thing. It just became more (laughs) like it was habitual more than it was anything else. I thought I was casting the demons out of my house. Otherwise they were going to break in and get into my mind and give me bad dreams. And that is literally what I was praying against. And it made me feel better. But when there came a point where I, when I was flirting with nihilism for a little while and atheism, I was, I was like, these, these demons don't exist. What am I praying against? And so I kind of came to this point where I, all the faith was kind of lost. And so instead of praying, I would ask myself these three questions. And I've kind of done this as a ritual since then. And I asked myself, am I, am I a better person than I was yesterday? Is this world a better place today than yesterday because of me? And did I show love and grace today where it wasn't expected? And these are the three questions that I ask myself, because these are the three realms in which I, in which I make this, my world, a better place. And I consist, my world consists of everyone that I interact with, every person that I come in contact with that, that walks by me. Am I a better person? because of these people is this world better because of me and did i show love and grace where it wasn't expected and these are the things that i go through so my question my last question for you is um is having a faith-based religion required to answer these questions
1: no i don't i don't think it is i think there are plenty of people that uh, don't have a a theistic faith probably do a very good job making the world a better place. Ethics, having an ethics, I should say, doesn't depend on religion or theism or any of the various uh, options of theism. I think there are lots of beautiful people out there that don't share my faith. (laughs) And uh, that doesn't mean my faith is less valuable. That doesn't mean my faith is wrong. Uh, I, I love my faith. I, I believe it and it's making me who I am. And, um, and I hope that with that, I can also make the world a much better place. And I believe my faith helps me do that. I believe it, it provides a motivation and, a um, an empowerment at times, a, a radical empowerment to do that in ways that I probably wouldn't otherwise, um, but I don't think my faith is essential to that. And my faith is, is based, it, it's a celebration of grace, which means that my faith, um, my inclusion in this faith doesn't depend on me making the world a better place. I, I hope that I do, and I hope that all Christians do. It's about God making the world a better place. My faith is that God is making the world a better place and he's invited us into that or she's invited us into that. I use the masculine pronoun there and I try not to do that actually, but it slips for that, out once actually. in a while. So I, God is making the world a better place. God has done that in the Christian faith, primarily through Jesus Christ and the, the life, death teachings works and resurrection of christ the the gift of the spirit and the birth of the church and the the continuing ministry of the spirit in the church that through that god is building a beautiful reign of grace a beautiful kingdom of life and love and we're not welcomed into that because we made the world a better place we we don't we don't earn our way into that or deserve our way into that or, or become something that fits that, and that is what lets us in. God has radically thrown the doors open to this betterness, this bettering place, and invited us all to do that, to make the world a better place, to, to, to make the world reflect the love which is God.
0: So what would you tell someone— who has gone through a faith deconstruction or has lost all faith and all hope in the religion they once held because of pain, because of betrayal, because their questions got too big, what would you tell them at this point in time?
1: (laughs) I'm not sure I would tell them anything other than, I'm so sorry you've been hurt. And maybe I would ask them, how can I help? And I'm really inclined to telling people things. I, I mean, I'm a, a scholar or, or a budding scholar and a preacher, and I'm all these things that are filled with lots of telling, 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 but I hope I'd have the wisdom and compassion and love to, to stop and say, I'm so sorry that it happened. How can I help? Would it, could I listen to your story and be with you? in your journey and then if they had questions and said you know how could I ever believe in Jesus again I mean maybe I'd be willing to explore those things but <laughs> for somebody that whose faith has been rocked or or destroyed I think I'd I'd want to start with listening and, and just being present
0: do you think it's important that they come back to a faith of some kind
1: Important comes with a lot of, the word itself comes with a lot of implications that are that are kind of hidden. So, important always has a, a something attached to it. Important to what? Right? Important to me? Well, I'd love to welcome them back to the faith. Uh, if that's... You know.
0: Important to the story of who they are.
1: Hmm. Well, I guess because their story isn't finished, uh, we'd have to see, wouldn't we? But I find myself hoping that it could become important to the story of who they are again. Uh, And if it doesn't, well, that's, you know, I could love them in whatever their story holds as important. And uh, I know (laughs) in the faith sense of things are kind of confused terms there but i i am convinced in the faith way that god is love to and for and with them uh, whether they have any acknowledgement of god in their story or not
0: it's really good so there's this astronaut Jim Lovell and he flew famously on Apollo 13. He, he was played by Tom Hanks in the movie. If you've seen the movie, a uh, great movie, recommend it. Spectacular. Mm-hmm. But he, but Loved he, it. Oh, it was so good. You know, I'm going to go watch it tonight. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Ah. Uh, uh, but he uh, honestly, he so he he honestly, this has nothing to do with honesty. Previously, <laughs> he flew on Apollo eight, which is personally my favorite Apollo mission. A lot of people don't know that there are other Apollo missions. Guess what? Thirteen was the thirteenth Apollo mission. But he flew on Apollo eight. I know, right? So he flew on <laughs> Apollo before there there was a Mercury. Never mind. Um, he flew on Apollo eight, which was my favorite because this was the first manned lunar mission. Jim Lovell was among the first of three people. Uh, he, there was uh, Frank Borman and Bill Anders. And then Jim Lovell. They were the first humans in existence to leave Earth's gravity and make the trip, the three-day trip to the moon. And they started orbiting the moon. I believe they orbited it like four times. I mean, can you imagine what was going through their mind? The 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 sheer energy of all that is happening that has led up to this point. And then they're slung-shot. Uh, out of earth's gravity and, and they're traveling in near 26, 27 mile, thousand miles per hour heading towards this celestial object, the closest one to earth. And it is the moon and there it is. And then they start orbiting it and they're orbiting is right beneath them. They can see through the windows. They're not landing yet because they're not there, but that happens in a couple of uh, happens uh, in a few Apollo missions from them, but they're looking right out the window. It's right there. And on the final orbit around the moon, Uh, They line this old-fashioned camera that they have. I mean, at the time, it was obviously, you know, 1968. It was the most advanced technology they had, but they lined it back up with the Earth, and they get this shot, which has become one of the most famous pictures in all of spaceflight history, and it's called Earth Rising, and the Earth is rising over the horizon of the moon.
1: Yeah, I can picture that exact scene I love that shot
0: uh, and it happened on such a particular day and a lot of people don't know this it happened on Christmas Eve December 24th 1968 exactly one year to the day from when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous Sermon on Peace huh and back on earth here we are in the middle of the Vietnam War and since then Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated And these three men are looking back at this beautiful oasis, realizing that we are literally all in this together. He said, Jim Lovell said in an interview about this mission, he reflected on this trip and what it did inside of him. He said that he grew up with uh, religious standpoints. He actually had this idea of heaven or paradise. And, but he also spent his entire life dedicated to space flight. He wanted to become an, an astronaut. And he always wanted to leave Earth and go to the moon. That was his whole goal, his entire life. But he said something so profound he, and so moving. He said that when the Apollo spacecraft orbited the moon for the final time and they took that picture and they started their journey back towards Earth, he said there it was, this magnificent like blue pearl beaming with life he said this was the paradise that i had always been looking for i had left this planet to go to the moon but what i found was the earth Mm. and you see when the mountain is no longer a mountain and the river is no longer a river sometimes you have to leave everything you know and you have to leave the church and you have to leave God and you have to leave the Bible and every religious construct that you had built. And for me in particular, this was the Bible and this was the church. And so I left it all behind and went on my journey and I placed some distance between me and everything that I knew about it. Uh, But after a while on this journey, once I felt like I was out of the gravitational pull of that old life and it took me a long time, like two years, I looked back I pointed my camera back from where I came from, and I saw the Bible in this new light, this vibrant collection of books and stories of people working out their beliefs with God that seemed so raw, and it was so real, and this was no longer a guide or a rule book. It was this incredible story, so many incredible stories told through so many generations. I found this new truth in this book, aside from factual historical accuracy, this poem is beautiful. This book of books, it became beautiful again and the mountain became a mountain again and the river became a river again. And maybe some of you out there in podcast land, maybe need to put some distance between you and the Bible or you and the church, or maybe you need to put some distance between you and the way you held some beliefs because it's no longer working for you, maybe you need a large gap between you and your religious constructs. But I'm here to say this is okay. That this won't distance you from God. It won't, if you care to believe that God even exists. And maybe this thing, maybe this distance needs to be for a while, detox from unhealthy thoughts.
1: When I left the faith it, like like you, for me, it was a very dark period. It was a very sudden, uh, sharp break with the faith, and then um, a, a period of wrestling, and then coming back. When I came back to the faith, there was a couple-year period where the faith felt very, very strange to me, and I was wrestling with it in a way that was, was profoundly not joyful. And... It was, an, it was a, a harsh and strained existence and uh, as I've gotten to know God in the way that I do now, gradually a sense of humor came in and eventually maybe <laughs> hopefully a little bit of humility came in and um, hopefully open-mindedness has and is coming in and curiosity coming in rather than uh, fixed ideas and hopefully a childlike sense of adventure theologically and otherwise right practically hopefully my faith is growing into those things where I once saw the idea of strengthening faith as gaining a stronger conviction in the things I already believe now I see strengthening my faith as exploring options and diversity and uh, the beauty of of multiplicity and dialogue mm. um so my my understanding of the faith is very very different than it used to be and the person i used to be as a christian would strongly dislike the person i am now as a christian uh, would probably condemn me and preach at me and and might even see me as as a non-christian
0: um, <laughs> Same, <laughs> but I,
1: I can assure my former self that I am very much a Christian, um, and and I am the kind of Christian I am now because I believe it's better, and more life-giving, and more reflective of the mm. image of God. Mm. And as you're sharing your story, I thought of, uh, of an author that's been important to me, and that's Richard Carney, K E R A R N E Y. Richard Carney wrote. Uh, Several, several books, but one one theme that he seems to, to find helpful and compelling is this idea of the God after the death of God. And so he uses sort of the historical trajectory of, of the the um, religious empire of Christianity that that dominated all of uh, the Western world for a time. Where, where being anything other than a Christian really, it wasn't practically all that much of an option. You could be a bad Christian or sort of a non-Christian, but but being anything other than a Christian wasn't wasn't a very realistic possibility. To the masters of suspicion like Freud and Nietzsche and um, Marx coming along and, and saying oh, religion's just an opiate of the people. God is dead and those sorts of things and 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 now coming through that Right, not in the way that the religious right does, saying no, God's not dead, God's alive, right? With with this sort of uh, apologetic vehemence, but saying, no, no, it was really important for us to pass through that that dying of God, because the the God who we we've whose death we've passed through kind of needed to die. That Mm -hmm. fundamentalist uh, exclusionary, that um, rule-bound. Uh, written in stone, God. That that it was good that that died. Uh, that was a, a form of opiate, and and thank God that God has died. <laughs> thank God that 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 we can die to that God and live to something new beyond that. That's that's that actually um, embodies the resurrection.
0: Hmm. And and count so can
1: live into a God that's not written in stone but a god written on hearts and a god of the spirit brooding over the waters uh not not foreboded and threatening waters but creative chaotic waters of life and and potentiality
0: awesome matt uh, i think that's that's about it um do you have any way, do you want anyone to get in contact with you? Do you have anything you want to share about who you are and what you do? People are
1: absolutely welcome to have my email address and, and get in touch with me. I would love to continue this dialogue if anybody's heard anything that they want to follow up on or push back on or build on in dialogue. I absolutely welcome that.
0: Awesome. I will put your email in the show notes then. Great. Awesome. Love you, brother. Thanks so much for coming on and talking, speaking your heart. This has been, this has been excellent.
1: I'm honored to, to talk with you, Mark, and it's been a pleasure. All right.
0: Thanks.